Now, I want to begin with a clarification. So turning your Bibles all the way to the very end to Revelation chapter 21. I want to make this real quick, but I want to make sure this is understood because it's actually pretty profound. Revelation chapter 21. And the clarification is this. I said last Wednesday, and I repeated it again on Sunday, uh, about the tabernacle in the wilderness, right, leading up into the promised land, and actually stood in the promised land for, for a long time. But the tabernacle and then New Jerusalem. You may recall this. In Revelation 21, verse 16, we saw that New Jerusalem measures 1,500 square miles cubed. This is massive, a total mass of 3.375 billion square miles. That's New Jerusalem. As the Bible says, coming down out of heaven. And again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And so last week I made the comment that just as New Jerusalem is 1,500 square miles cubed, the tabernacle was 15 feet cubed. So we've got the 15 that parallels the tabernacle in the wilderness. Here's the problem. It actually wasn't. Rick, you lied to us. No, and there were some of you who caught this, by the way. Some of you who picked it up. One was Jake who sat there going, wait a minute. I don't think that's true. And then there was Donna who came up to me and said, you know, we walked into that mock-up of the tabernacle down in Timnah, southern Israel, and it was bigger than 15 by 15, Rick. And I said, you know, you're right. See, the outer court of the tabernacle is 150 feet by 75 feet. That's the outer tent, okay? But you go into that open-air court, and inside is the, what we could call the tabernacle proper, the actual tent of the tabernacle, which was 45 feet Long by 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. So where we get 15 feet squared or 15 square feet cubed, where we get that? It's the Holy of Holies. So think about this. This is awesome. New Jerusalem wasn't a preview of the tabernacle. New Jerusalem was previewed by the most holy place. So that is to say what we see coming down out of heaven. Let this sink in. Four times God said to Moses, there I will meet with you. Exodus 25, 22, 29, 42, 30, verse 6, and 30, verse 36. Over and over the Lord said, I will meet with you there. I'll see you there. And in that 15 by 15 square foot room that was a cube, because again, it was 15 feet high as well, the glory of God dwelt among his people Israel. That room was visited once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat as a foretaste, a shadowing, if you will, of the cross. And what's amazing is that New Jerusalem is the future eternal realization, not just of the tabernacle, but of the holy of holies, the actuality of God dwelling with his people. That to me is huge. Now, you might say, Question, and it's a, a heaven question. Will we actually see God the Father? Listen to this, Revelation 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in New Jerusalem. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
Will we see God the Father? And yes, that is speaking of God the Father. Yes, we will. Wait, no one can see God and live. Yeah, well, we already will have died. We die to self. We live to Christ. And if we're caught up in the rapture of the church, yes, we will see God. We will see his face in New Jerusalem, that amazing place that we will dwell. So what does that do to you? Thinking about just processing, and I know it's a huge thing. In fact, we were talking earlier this morning that, that all of this stuff about heaven is so big. It's so much bigger than we are. And, and to, to comprehend it all, I, I, you know, don't expect to comprehend it all. In fact, another way to put it, something else that was just spoken earlier today, I don't have to get it. I just need to believe it. I don't always get everything that I read in the scriptures, but I believe it. The scripture will say it, I can read it and go, wow, that, I'm not even sure how to work that out in my puny brain. But I believe it, because God said it. So we're going to be in that place. What does that do? How does that affect faith and following especially in the here and now. What you don't know, but I know, is five teachings ago when we first opened up and we were talking about hell and we were going to talk about heaven, my original intention, I want to talk about what does heaven do to us now? How does it affect the walk of faith? Now instead, the Lord took us down a direction of trying to define and understand what does the Bible really say about hell? How does the Bible define and explain heaven as, as a reality? And we've gone down that road and looked at those things, and yes, there's still more that you can be considering and thinking about. But we've been talking about heaven and hell then so we can know how we are to live now. And this is, this is where we're going to get beyond tonight, beyond the how do you do this and into the supernatural work of God, which is the only way any of this is going to get done. And I think that'll make sense before we're done. Sunday, we talked about Western culture and the whole secularization of the spiritual. In essence, that, that quote, lopping off the idea of transcendence in our popular consciousness. Not looking beyond where we are, just living for now, living for today, getting everything we can right now. And so what happens is that a heavenly day is as good as it gets. And a hellish happening is as bad as it gets. And people have even adopted that language and taken the transcendence of heaven and lowered it to just describe a good day or, or the tragedy and fearsomeness of hell and used it just to describe a bad day. Heaven and hell on earth. But listen, get this. Understand that if I take the perspective of heaven on earth, I've had a heavenly day. Guess what? That's vanity, a vain prospect all that will ever do is lead to dissatisfaction because the heavenly day is never quite heavenly enough. It never quite gets you there. The perfect vacation, you know what the perfect vacation is? It's the day before you leave. That's the perfect vacation. Because once you start on that vacation, you're on your way to losing your vacation every day of the vacation. And then when you get back, you go, it never's quite enough. It was heavenly, but not quite because I had to come home and go to work. Right, Eva? I had to come back. So heavenly, it's dissatisfying, it's disappointing, it's disillusioning. When you start to say, oh, I've had a hellish day, or you think of hell on earth, guess what? That creates depression, despair, 
And worst of all, self-victimization. Well, my life's a living hell. Well, you're just pathetic. <laughs> self-victimization. It's playing the woe is me card. You know what John said? 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and we are. So right now, we're children of God. Praise the Lord. That's amazing. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So this whole idea of heaven, focusing on heaven, thinking about heaven, looking toward heaven, has a purifying effect on us. Because it pulls us out of the pathetic hellish day or heavenly vacation. It pulls us away from that to see that there is more, greater, glorious that's out ahead of us that is coming. For now, we're children of God. We don't know yet what we're going to be. We can hear it described. We can hear it explained. But we don't know it until we are in it. But for now, and here's where I'm going, the kingdom of God is within the within, as we talked about. That sounds really cool. The kingdom of God is within the within. Yeah, I learned that at church. Cool. What does it mean? I don't know. The kingdom of God is within the the within, Jesus said, amongst, I'm in your midst. It's like the seed that Jesus called the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13. And we went through that on Sunday. That seed, the word of the kingdom, implanted, sprouting, growing, somehow bearing fruit, even now, how does that work? What does that look like? I read the parables. I'm still a little confused, Rick. I get it. James says, James 1.21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. So the word, the seed implanted, which is able to save your souls, which I found, find fascinating because it doesn't say it's able to save your spirit for eternity. What's the difference? Your soul is the seed of reason. It's your mentality. It's your thinking. The word implanted is able to save your brain, my friends able to save the way you perceive this world, the way you think. I'm not saying salvation isn't a real thing. Of course it is. But the word implanted, God's word in my life, doesn't just save me for then. In fact, it doesn't save me for then. Grace saves me for then. But what the word implanted does is it saves my thinking for now. Saves my soul. Puts me in a right thinking so with that in mind, we're going to cover two more things, two more aspects of this concept of heaven tonight, but we're going to look at it in the now. We're going to talk about, number one, how to deal when life feels like hell on earth. Because you just told us, Rick, I can't say it's hellish. I can't say today was a living hell. So how do I deal when it feels that way? Okay, we'll talk about that. And then secondly, how are we to live until the actual kingdom of heaven. I hear Christians all the time saying we're citizens of the kingdom. What does that mean? How does that look? We'll talk about that too. So first off, how do we deal when life feels like hell on earth? When everything's going bad, everything's going wrong, wrong is turning into wrong and bad is following bad, be it a day, a month, a season, a year. How do we deal? 
And I think the best person to ask if we're just talking about humans here is Paul. I think Paul's the guy to go to. Talk about a guy whose life was messed up. Paul could explain this. So turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be in two, two primary places tonight. And 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 is the first one. How do I deal when it feels like hell on earth? And Paul responds. Listen first off, to, while you're turning there, listen to how Jesus described the life that Paul was going to get to live. Okay, this is great. Jesus is going to call him to ministry. Woohoo! Jesus is going to make Paul his man. Yes, what does that look like? Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. All right. For I will show him how, he, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Jesus speaks, as it were, to a man named Ananias, who he's telling, I want you to go baptize Saul, the church killer. I want you to go baptize him, and I'm going to show him. I will explain to him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. If anyone had the right to say, my life has been hellish, it would be Paul. Now, he wouldn't say that, but he sure would have the right to if he wanted to. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, actually, Paul is defending his chosenness. 10, 11, and 12, these chapters, he's defending his apostleship against some guys who Paul actually calls super apostles. These guys thought they were all that and a slice of bread. These were the special apostles. These are the real guys. And Paul calls them out and begins to have to defend his apostleship to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he says, chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they, are they servants of Christ? And you can almost feel him just letting that hang in the air for a minute. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Far more in labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. This is Paul describing his ministry. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, apart from such external things, which by the way also translates apart from the things unmentioned, so Paul's saying, there's stuff I'm not even touching on in this list. Apart from all that, verse 28, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. <laughs> Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. 
So Paul lays all this stuff out. And if you read that and someone handed that to you and said, hey, be a Christian and this could be your life. Are you kidding me? No, thank you. Paul lays this all out. But he's not playing the woe is me card. He's not playing, oh, my life's a living hell card. What Paul is doing is saying, I've got to tell you about this because I've got to highlight for you the very source of my strength. Watch this, chapter 12, verse 7. Skip over there. Because of the surpassing greatness, he says, of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Okay, so if it's not bad enough that his life that was high and mighty and intellectual and intelligent and en route to be a major player among the Jews, not, that now is in the garbage can of experience. On top of that, Paul has a thorn in his flesh. And we don't even know what it is. Some think it was a blindness issue, possibly. Some think it was some other issue, but it plagued him and it dogged him everywhere he went to the point that he cried out to the Lord, please take this from me three times. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me, verse 9, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Having a hard day? Power is perfected in weakness. Having a tough month, power is perfected in weakness. Worst year of your life, praise the Lord. Power is perfected in weakness. When I don't have another thing to give, when I don't have the strength to do it one more day, his power is perfected in my weakness Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. All this stuff, all of these hardships, all these difficulties, all these dangers, hey, it's okay because it's making me strong in the Lord. It's exhibiting his power in me and in my inability to do anything but trust in him. At the end of his mortal life, Paul would even say, 2 Timothy 1.15, all who are in Asia turned away from me. So this man lived his life through trials and dangers and difficulties and hardship and weakness. He died rejected, undefended, imprisoned, and finally beheaded for the very good news that he carried in his life. But his last words to Timothy were these. Listen, 2 Timothy 4.18, in that last chapter at least, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And it's one of two times that phrase is used, heavenly kingdom. The rest of the time, it's as I pointed out to you, the kingdom of heaven, 32 times in Matthew and nowhere else in the New Testament. But Paul says twice, his heavenly kingdom, and this is one of them, he'll bring me into his heavenly kingdom safely to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So I ask this question, how do we deal when it feels like hell on earth? How do we deal when it feels like everything is going wrong? How did Paul how did he keep going? How did he leave 
the, the embarrassment, as it were, of Athens and make his way down to Corinth and continue his ministry? How did he leave prison when he was released and continue right on preaching the gospel? How do you do that? Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Yes, that phrase caught up is harpazo. I know a guy who was raptured to where God is, the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows. By the way, I really like that because there's a lot of things I don't know, but God knows. So I'm just gonna trust him. He says, I know how this man was, verse 4, caught up, again, harpazoed, raptured into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. So in my flesh, I could boast about something like that, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Here's the point. How do you deal when it feels like hell on earth? You look at heaven. You have a vision of heaven. Now, don't miss this. Paul saw heaven. Paul is the man he's describing who 14 years ago, circa AD 42, was caught up and saw heaven. And I believe part of the reason God caught him up wasn't just to train him, it was to let him see this is where you're going because of the nightmare that your life is about to become, you need to know where you're going to end up. You need to know what you're going to be and where you're going to be so that when all this goes down, you will know, but I know where I'm going. I know what I've seen. I have seen heaven. He has this vision that's so great, he even goes then to describe the thorn in the flesh, which he realizes was given to him so he wouldn't be self-exalting because he's seen heaven. I've seen heaven. Man, if you have seen heaven, then you can deal when it feels like everything's going wrong. Now, someone here tonight might say, well, that's great, but I haven't seen what Paul had. Oh, haven't you? Really? You haven't seen what Moses saw, the sapphire pavement? You haven't seen what Ezekiel saw with the cherubim and the chariots and the Christ? You haven't seen what Ezekiel described? What Isaiah saw when he said, I saw the Lord? Seated on a throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. You haven't seen that yet? We've just been talking about that. You haven't seen what John described in the revelation of Jesus Christ? You're telling me you haven't had a vision of heaven? Paul didn't have this book to open up every time the day went bad. You do. I do. This makes understanding heaven, reading about heaven, even the things that are incomprehensible, it makes the study of heaven so vital to a follower of Jesus Christ. This is our vision of where we're going. So on the hard days, it's okay, because we know where we're headed. We know what's coming, and it's breathtaking. We have a vision of heaven, and God's given it to us, so then he can say, set your minds on things above. So I can have a heavenly mindset because I know what that looks like. All these heavenly truths culminate in, in the revelation and they're here to keep us in the loop. They're here to remind us all the teachings on heaven 
that heaven is not on earth. And that no matter how bad things may get, hell isn't on earth either. So we can be assured, as Jesus prayed, his kingdom will come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've seen heaven, brothers and sisters. Thank God we've been given a vision of heaven. And if you're struggling, go back to the vision. Read it again. Look at where you're going. And trust in God to get you there. So Jesus said then, he said the kingdom of God is within the within. Remember the kingdom of God, the overarching dominion of God, wherever God is and wherever God is worshipped, that's the kingdom of God. And then Jesus described the word of the kingdom, described it as a sprouting seed in the heart. So the kingdom of God is within the within, inside the inside, but the seed, which is the word of the kingdom, also has been implanted in the heart because the, the soil is the heart, as Jesus described, again, Matthew 13. So there's something going on right now that is for them. We know heaven's coming. We've had a vision of it, but there's something going on right now. How do we live until the kingdom of heaven comes to its full fruition? What does it look like? So turn in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 5, and let's follow this through. Matthew chapter 5. Now your homework this week, if you'd like it, is to pour over the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to do all of it tonight. But take a look at it. Read it. Think about it. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus unveils what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom now. How, how we live now. How we are to be now. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And actually, went up on the mountain, that means he went toward the sea. So sometimes they, they rephrase things to try and make it a little more understandable. He's on the mountain above the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus has gone. And after he sat down, which is what rabbis would do, his disciples came to him, and I really like that. His disciples came to him. That's what disciples do. That's what bond servants do. We come to Jesus. Confused, we go to Jesus. Uncertain, we go to Jesus. Hard day, we go to Jesus. Beautiful day, we go to Jesus. The master sits down, and the disciples come to him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed stop right there blessed bible students you know this blessed it's makarios is the greek word here it's it's the the verb form makarioi and blessed is how we translate that the best we can get in english the best is blessed the latin word is beatus which is where we get the beatitudes See, it's not that these things in these first few verses of of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not that they are attitudes of being. You ever heard that sermon? The Beatitudes, attitudes of being. This is how to have the right attitude to be in the right attitude. That's not where it comes from. That's not the meaning. In fact, I think that strips it down a little bit more than it ought to be. The word Beatus is where we get Beatitudes, and Beatus in the Latin means beautiful. Be- these are beautiful blessings. 
It's a good way to think about it. Beautiful blessings. Now, he says, blessed are, and that phrase, blessed are, has a Hebrew equivalent, and that is ashray. Ashray in the Hebrew, not baruch. For you Hebrew students, you know, baruch is, is also the word that means blessed, but baruch in the Hebrew is a blessing given. Baruch atah Adonai, blessed be the name of the Lord. But this isn't Baruch, this is in the Hebrew Ashrei, it describes a state of blessedness. So as Jesus begins to go down this list, he's describing the heavenly life. He's describing being in a state of blessedness. The Hebrew phrase Ashrei is used in Isaiah 30 verse 18, which says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are, how blessed are all those who long for him. How ashrei, how beatus, how makarioi, how blessed are those who long for him. Blessedness is not a feeling. Blessedness is more. It's not, it's not the equivalent of the English word happy. Happy is way too flimsy for what this word means. It's not happy. It's blessed are. It's not lucky. I've actually seen some translators say, well, it's kind of like lucky or fortunate. No. No, it's not luck. This is not haphazard happiness or random luck. This is the heavenly life. This is beautiful blessing. Beautifully blessed, you might say, are. And then we go on into the list And this list belongs to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. These are those who live the heavenly life. This is brass tacks, folks. This is right where it gets down to the wire of understanding how we are now in the world as we look to the kingdom of heaven to come. Blessed, he says. Blessed, the citizens. And put it to you this way. Citizens of the kingdom can be in the midst of being beaten, stoned, scourged, and still be blessed. The citizen of the kingdom can be diagnosed with inoperable cancer, can experience personal loss, can walk in the midst of tragedy and still be blessed. Citizen of the kingdom, this is the person who can be insulted, persecuted, and falsely accused with all kinds of evil and still walk blessed. Blessed are. And by the way, this is not mental determination. I am going to be blessed. It's not mind over manner. I'm going to be righteous. It's not resolved optimism. No matter what happens, I'm going to be good. Doesn't work. This is something, listen to me, this is something Jesus does within your within. This isn't even something you can do, which is why I love this list so much. This is not a how-to. This is a Jesus does. This is experienced by citizens of the kingdom as we trust in Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, thinking again about Paul and the life he lived, he said, I've learned to be content with whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul lived a blessed life. Blessed are. And when Jesus, what what he began teaching that day on the rolling green amphitheater above the blue sea of Galilee, 
was the blessed state of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, your points for the rest of the evening are right here. Okay? Each one of these beatitudes, these blessedness, these beautiful blessings. These are your your points tonight. So the first point is blessed are the poor in spirit. And note this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is heavenly related. The poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished. The first thing, note this, that is seeded by the word of the kingdom, the first thing that sprouts is spiritual poverty. Now that's unexpected. Wouldn't you think God plants the word of the kingdom in your heart and wealth? (laughs) I am rich in the Lord. Nope, you're spiritually impoverished. That's where this starts. That's the first blessing, as it were. The word poor here, poor in spirit, is patokoi, and it means destitute, impoverished, penniless. You are spiritually penniless. In other words, when you come to Jesus, first thing you realize, you ain't got nothing to offer him. Well, I got something. No, you don't. Well, yeah, but if I bring, no, it's worthless. (laughs) We come to him worthless. The seed drops into our heart and goes, I am spiritually poor. I I am Mr. Nobody. To be poor in spirit is to realize, here comes the blessing, I'm only saved because God wanted it that way. (laughs) I am only here because he wants me to be. Man, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, again, Paul, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So that seed drops in, the word of the kingdom, and I realize I am spiritually impoverished because mercy and grace crushes the sinner's pride. Just takes it out of the picture. See, pride is is the way that I can never enter heaven. I can't by my own greatness get in. And so God says, let's take that off the table right at the start. And so in my spiritual poverty, suddenly now, my home in heaven comes into view. Because God has invited me. And God is working and moving in me. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can't get it any other way. It's a gift. By grace. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, this is just getting better. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we finally realize and and accept and confess our spiritual poverty, what does it do to the heart? Makes you mourn. Makes you sorrowful. Bums you out, you could say. Why? Because I mourn the condition I'm in. When I come to Christ and that seed sprouts open and I realize I've got nothing to give for the first time in my life, now I'm mourning over who I am and what, I, what I've got, which is nothing. It's like Peter. Oh, Peter. Matthew 26, verse 74. He began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. How do you think he felt in that moment? Prophecy fulfilled. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, Peter. 
And in that third denial, the rooster crows. And the Bible says, Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, and he went out and wept bitterly. He came face to face with his spiritual poverty and found himself in deepest mourning. Or Luke chapter 7, verse 38. What about the sinful woman? I love how she's called the sinful woman. I would call her now the previously sinful woman. But in that moment, she stands behind him at his feet and she's weeping and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. She kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume because she is mourning her spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty first and you see that and it horrifies and brings up this mourning but here's the blessing, I mourn, he comforts. I mourn in my pitiful state. He says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven as she catches her breath. And, and think about this. As, as Peter sat on the hillside that day, when Jesus begins to speak, blessed are the spiritually impoverished, blessed are those who mourn. And Peter's hearing this. He had no idea whatsoever that he would soon be restored by Jesus on the beach right down there in front of him. As Jesus calls him back to ministry. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Okay, Peter, do you like me? Then just do as I've asked you to do. And Peter starts to get a sense that Jesus has not given up on him. Paul describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. That's sorrow, that's mourning. My spiritual condition is pathetic. I mourn over it. But that kind of mourning brings repentance. It leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the Lord just produces death. Or, or sorry, the sorrow of the world just produces death. That's Judas. That's the sorrow of Judas, who in his mourning goes out and hangs himself rather than turning to the Lord. But brothers and sisters, there is no tenderness, there is no comfort like that of forgiveness. When Jesus looks at you, looks at me and says, I know what you've done, and you go, so do I. And he says, forgiven. Suddenly I'm comforted. And that comfort, by the way, begins to change me. The comfort of the Lord. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, and they are, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I'll tell you what, if that's what it takes to get the comfort of God, I want that. If it's that kind of sorrow, that kind of mourning, that kind of suffering for Christ in the world, but if that brings on the comfort of God, I want to know that comfort. It's worth it. So we mourn in our spiritual poverty, and the divine comfort flows, and it develops another blessedness. Note this is rolling one into the next. And that is, verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So the third, the third blessing is, is the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. The word is also in some of your translations, blessed are the meek. Same word, 
in the, in the Greek, and this is, by the way, how Jesus described himself. This is the same word he used for himself when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, or I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus, in his only self-description, says, this is me. So when he says, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, he's talking about himself. In fact, Side note, you can take this whole list and what it is is a picture of Jesus from start to finish. But, but he, I mean, he's the man who was poor in spirit. He made himself poor in spirit. He mourned not only over his, not on, over his sin, but over ours. He is the gentle one. He is meek. Blessed are the meek. Now get this, because it's important. The word gentle or meek here in the Greek is praus, P-R-A-U-S. Look it up. Think about it. But it's more than just, it's not Oscar milk toast. Okay? Blessed are the meek is not blessed are the wimpy. Blessed are the gentle, and what it describes is meekness, yes, calm, tranquility, power under control. This same word would be used to describe a mighty steed out in a field calmly eating the grass. If you've been around horses, they big animals. They're powerful, but when they're at rest and at peace and just out in the field, there's nothing that looks more serene. When they're running, get out of the way. But when they're calm, power under control. They're praus. A lion, a lion that you know can roar and tear into the meat, but suddenly is laying there sunning and purring. Ever heard a lion purr? They purr like cats. Power under control, praus. Listen, praus, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek. What Jesus is describing is great power under a greater gentling influence. That's, that's a follower of Jesus. That's a citizen of, of the kingdom. Do you realize the power that you have in Christ Jesus? The dunamis is the other Greek word that he says, wait until you receive power from where, Lord? From on high? The power that I have as a follower of Jesus Christ, the, the power is awesome. But there's a greater influence over me than the power he gives me, and it gentles me. It gentles me. What is that power? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. The greater influence is the love. The love controls the power. When we get that backwards, and it happens in churches from time to time, when power supersedes love, everything goes wrong. But love is the control of power. It, love controls position. Love controls the role that God has called you to. That there is no leader in a church. There is no senior pastor or shepherd or elder in a church who has the right to lord it over because love controls me. Love controls the leader. Love controls the teacher. Love controls the evangelist and the apostle. Love controls. Ever feel like you're, you just want to go off on someone, but you don't? And, and you're kind of surprised at yourself because your natural man, your natural woman wants to go off, but something says stop. And you go, I'm just going to bite my tongue. It's because love is controlling the power, and my friends, that's gentleness. Blessed are the gentle. 
Blessed are the praus. Listen to Strong's definition. I love this. He says, gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. I can tell you, I, I, was, I was a self-assertive pastor. Cheryl, can you verify that? I was an ambitious young pastor. I fired people. I said, man, if you're not on the train going to Georgia, you ain't on the train. You're either flying with me or you're off. Get off the plane if you're not going where we're going. I mean, I, and I wanted to get it done and build the kingdom and make great things. And I was on that track back when we lived in Southern California. Every intern that worked for me left my office in tears. I kid you not, at least once. And not because I was being gentle. <laughs> my friends, Strong's continues and says, it stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. That was my biggest problem as a pastor. I was occupied with self. I was occupied with my success as a pastor for Jesus. Isn't that crazy? And that self-occupation leaves me out of control and leaves me anything but gentle. But the gentle person is not occupied with self. Strong says, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is not a work of human will. And to that I say, amen. I can't rein me in, but the love of Christ controls me. The Holy Spirit compels me. The work of this, no, put it this way. The work of the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. Right? What are the last two varieties of the fruit of the Spirit? Do you remember what they are? Gentleness and self-control. Isn't that interesting? He gentles me. And so blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek. And notice he says, because they, or for they shall inherit the earth. That is a prophetic promise. That goes back to Psalm 37, 11, which reads, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Why? Why do the meek get to inherit the earth? Because these are the kind of gentle, self-controlled, priestly rulers that Jesus is looking for for his administration. He's looking for the gentle. He's looking for those who have come under the influence, if you will, of the Spirit who brings the power but keeps it in check under love. That's who Jesus wants in his kingdom. That's how he wants us to be, to, to live, to look. Great power controlled by the greater love. And so spiritual poverty that leads to mourning and develops gentleness. And these then develop a whole new kind of hunger. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I remember the first rated R movie I ever saw. I won't tell you what it was. But I remember sneaking in because I was too young, lying to my parents. I'm really throwing myself under the bus tonight. <laughs> I figure I've thrown Jake under the bus enough. Let's just throw Rick under. No, I, my, I was a teenager, snuck in to see this particular R-rated movie, told my parents I was going to go see something PG, snuck in. I looked old enough, I guess. They didn't check. And I remember having a hunger for things like that. Maybe you do too. I remember hungering for sin. I remember thirsting for things that were dark and, and going, yeah, that's kind of cool. And I was, a, I was a Christian. I was a church boy. 
And I was playing both sides of the aisle, as it were. I was playing the church with one side, and I was playing the world with the other, and I was hungry for that and thirsty for that. But something begins to change. Man, when you're really born again, you start to hunger for something else. You might want to ask yourself, do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or am I more intrigued by the latest show on Netflix that I probably shouldn't be watching? And, and rather than it being, I shouldn't be watching that because I'm a Christian, no, what are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? Do you find your hunger going that direction? If so, something's not in track, something's not in line. Perhaps that's something to pray about, to say, Lord, help me hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Take me down that direction. See, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not natural for you and for me. What's natural is hungering and thirsting for the flesh. I want more steak. I want more alcohol. I, I want more experience in life. That's the flesh talking. We come out of the womb hungering for flesh. We come out of the womb going, feed me now. We come out of the room crying and whining and wanting everything for me. And then even as we grow up, we get to be one, two, three years old. And we want what we want when we want it. Or we're throwing a fit. That's natural. It is supernatural to find yourself hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When a person's born again, the seed of the word of the kingdom drops in the heart and this new hunger develops, this new thirst increases and, and you, you do find yourself wanting to feed on righteous things. You find yourself with a taste for integrity where that's actually something in your life. And again, as a young man, <laughs> I had a lot to learn. There was a lot of work that God had to do in me. I can tell you this and I can tell you this truly. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I find unrighteousness tasteless. It just doesn't do it for me. But righteousness, a good, a good time of worship, being a man of integrity who actually does what he says, reading the word pouring over heaven as we've been doing, this, this begins to feed like nothing else can. I, I, I find myself wanting to guzzle down goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 8. And you find yourself wanting to consume holiness. Not because you have to. Not because that's what church people do. Not because the pastor made you feel guilty because you're watching stuff you shouldn't watch. That's not the, no, it's you start to hunger for the other stuff. For that which is good and righteous and pure. And those with an appetite, note this, for righteousness, what does he say? Will be satisfied. When you get this hunger and thirst, you're not going to go hungry. And you're not going to be left thirsty. You'll be satisfied in a way that nothing else can satisfy. By the way, in the same teaching later on, Matthew 6, Jesus said again, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God will take care of it. If my focus is a kingdom focus, a kingdom of heaven focus, a heavenly life focus, the Lord will feed the heart hungry for holiness. And Jesus will quench the spirit thirsting after virtue. 
And so when Paul says, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things, it's not a list of how-to anymore. It's a list of want-to. I want to be in a place that's pure, and I want to think about holy things. I want that vision of New Jerusalem coming down, the holy of holies is my future dwelling. Why? Why do you want that, Rick? Because something supernatural is going on. Something supernatural is taking place as Jesus leads me through the state of blessedness. And verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the truth is, the more you feed on his righteousness, guess what? The more merciful you become. Well, how's that work? You become more merciful because he's merciful. And what I'm saying here is that mercy is a product of divine righteousness. It's not that God is righteous and God's merciful. Righteousness by nature brings mercy because it's right. Because he knows that's what I need. And so righteousness produces mercy. And as I hunger and thirst after his righteousness, mercy begins to be developed in me. Jesus said, Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. I don't obtain God's mercy by being merciful. I become merciful because he's been merciful to me. His mercy starts to play out in my life and how I treat my family. Do my kids always earn my mercy? No, they don't. But I find myself more merciful to my children because my father was merciful to me. Mercy begetting mercy. I think about what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.10, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we're walking down and and hearing these, these traits, if you will, practical traits of the heavenly man, practical traits of the heavenly woman. This is what you'll look like when you're living in the kingdom of heaven now for the kingdom that's coming This is what we look like, verse 8, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. To be pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart. To be in this state of blessedness, the pure in heart, what that means is unadulterated. It means single-minded, if you will, in passion and in purpose. Pure in heart are just blessed because, man, they know their focus. They know their first love. They know Jesus. To, To be pure in heart really is to have eyes which are fixed on Jesus, which is partially why the pure in heart shall see God. The more I look at Jesus, the more he purifies my heart. The more my heart is purified, the more I long to see Jesus. But again, again, as we're seeing, none of this just happens. None of this is a how-to. Don't go home and think, okay, I'm going to start practicing being poor in spirit. You know? I mean, try that one. Look in the mirror and just go, your most impoverished look. It's not going to do anything for you. But asking Jesus to show you your spiritual poverty, that's a different thing. And he's walking us through this. And in this walk of the heavenly life, the heart is being purified. This is sanctification. Blessed 
are the pure in heart. Well, my heart isn't always pure. Yeah, but it's more pure now than it was yesterday because he's working on me and he's purifying me. And 1 Timothy 1.5 says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Why do we do this? Why do you show up midweek like you are tonight? Because the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. This is a purifying time and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we're talking about spiritual integrity. By the way, one more thing on this pure in heart issue. Why is it blessed are the pure in heart rather than blessed are the pure in action or the pure in behavior or the pure in vocabulary? It's blessed are the pure in heart because if God's got your heart, he's got you. What we give our heart to, we give ourselves to. And that changes my vocabulary and my actions and my behavior. The key, and Jake said it last night to the teens, the key here, my friends, it's not, I'm going to get this wrong, Jake. The key is not doing the right thing. The key is loving Jesus. You focus on Jesus. How can I become a better evangelist to my friends? You focus on Jesus. You love him more. He purifies your heart. You see him. And that will then affect actions, behavior, language. Revelation 22, verse 4 says, they will see his face again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You'll see him. We're going to see him as he purifies the heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we just stepped into a different category here. Something has changed. Up until now, this is all about him working within your within. This is all supernatural work of the Spirit in you, in me, producing this, developing this one thing into the next, trait unto trait, but we come to blessed are the peacemakers, and now this is different. We have just downshifted into mission. This is now my mission to be a peacemaker. This is now what I'm doing. Our calling, very simplified, is to be peacemakers in this world. Let me give you four ways this plays out. Oh, Rick, a list of four. This goes fast. So if you're taking notes, jot them down or just listen. It's pretty simple. We're peacemakers. I make peace with God through Jesus, right? And then I help others make peace with God through Jesus. I make peace with other people because I'm a peacemaker, a brother, a sister, a friend, I make peace because reconciliation is now my responsibility and I help other people make peace. I make peace with God. As a peacemaker, I help others make peace with God through Jesus. I make peace with other people because that's my calling and I also help others make peace with others. And Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, peacemakers. Namely, that, it was, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So I make peace with God, and then I call others to make peace with God through Jesus. And I make peace with other people and I encourage them to make peace with each other. We are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They'll be called sons of God. How's that? Because we look like our Father. I'm called a son of God. Ladies, daughters of God, because you look like Dad. You look like our Heavenly Father, who is himself the ultimate peacemaker. 
maker, making peace through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And then, after all this, life gets heavenly, right? Thanks for playing, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. In the progression, we now come, after all this supernatural work of God, blessed are the persecuted, (laughs) for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are the persecuted. So wait a minute, wait a minute. The spiritually impoverished, mournful, gentle, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. I get it, that's all good, but, but I go through all this and now for that I get persecuted? Right. That's the process. That's where you're going. Because the reality is in this world, proof positive that the kingdom of heaven is not here yet, in this world, if you seek to live the heavenly life, the hellish will take notice. They will sit up and see what you're doing. Those aligned with the enemy, whether they know it or not, will not like seeing a heavenly person. Will not seeing this evidence in your life. And so verse 11 says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Note that it is separate from verse 10. This isn't one just big generic persecution. It's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness and blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. Because you've actually named Jesus as the source of your righteousness. Two types of persecution here. Sometimes you're just persecuted because you're doing the right thing. Oh, come on, Rick, come on, let's go see the movie. It's not that big a deal. You know, this movie was recommended to me by all my friends at church. Come on, man. No, no, I I don't want to do it. Yeah, well, whatever, Mr. Righteous. Persecute for righteousness. But when you're naming Jesus and people are getting after you because you're crazy, oh, you're one of those wacky people naming Jesus, it's a different level of persecution. And it is persecution the same. Note the difference. If you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're persecuted because of me, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. You get the kingdom and you get rewarded. Remember what Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And with that comes Great reward. Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming and my reward is with me. You're going to be rewarded when you suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. This is the temporal response. Persecution is the temporal response to the heavenly life. That is, if you get caught up in this, if the Spirit supernaturally begins to take you down this road, and He has in many of your lives, if not all of your lives, guess what? Persecution's around the corner. It's going to come. You can count on it. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Skip Heitzig said, persecution is the inevitable clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Persecution has to happen because the value system of the world and the value system of citizens of the kingdom is night and day. These two are in conflict. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world cannot coexist. And so there will be a clash. 
Now, let me sum this up and listen. We have just gone through in these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that speaks of citizens of the kingdom, that expresses how kingdom-minded people live, what we look like, how we're being changed, what our behavior. I mean, you can just go through here and say, this, this, is, this is what God wants to do in me. And with some of these things, you can say, oh, I see God doing that in me. And there are other things you think, wow, Lord, I need you to do that in me. But as you go through this and think it through, Jesus starts out with nine states of blessedness. Nine. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness and those who are persecuted because of me, Jesus says. Nine traits that we call, quote-unquote, the Beatitudes, the Beatus, the blessed are. Huh. How many, how many uh, varieties of the fruit of the Spirit are there? Nine. As you go through the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, nine. That's very interesting to me. You know, there are also nine specific gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. Paul describes nine. Now, there are other gifts listed other places, but in that place, nine gifts of the Spirit. Nine aspects or, or varieties of the fruit of the Spirit. Nine blessed R's in this section of Jesus' teaching. The number nine, I don't know if you've ever heard this. The number nine is a significant number in the Bible. It's used 49 times. <laughs> seven times seven is 49. God's mathematics is just blows my mind. But 49 times the number nine is used. And what we see in tracking this number over and over is it seems to indicate the divine work of finality. Fruit of the Spirit, the, the blessed R's, the gifts of the Spirit, these all bring us to a finality. There is an end game at work here with the Lord. This is not just an ongoing on into eternity, you're just going to be sanctified, sanctified, sanctified. Eventually, you're going to be glorified. Eventually, all this is leading us to not just being heavenly minded, but heavenly people with Jesus. The number nine. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all confirmed this, that it was the ninth hour when Jesus breathed his last. John 19.30 tells us he cried out, it is finished, finished. The finishing work of God. The, the Beatitudes, this is the finishing work. Gifts of the Spirit are for the finishing work in the body. The fruit of the Spirit is the finishing work emerging in us as we live the heavenly life. It is finished, Jesus says. What was? Everything necessary to save and sanctify you and me for the kingdom of heaven. Oswald Chambers once said, he wrote in my utmost for his highest, September 25th, the Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has altered my disposition and put in a disposition like his own. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, we must be made disciples supernaturally. This is the heavenly life. 
It is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in us, in you, in me. Life altered supernaturally by the presence and the power of the sower as he is tending and cultivating and blessing with the word of the kingdom inside my inside. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 then says, Therefore let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that is by the blood of Christ, and our bodies washed with pure water. And we are a heavenly people. Father, thank you for your word to us. And I pray because I know whenever we talk about okay, this is not something I can do. This is not a how-to list. This is a, this is a meaning. This is a purpose. This is a what-you-do-in-us list. And so, Father, that leaves us really with, with one request tonight, and that is, Lord, do your finishing work in us. Father, bring your presence to bear. Lord, I, I say to you, make me more gentle, merciful, pure in heart, Father, make me one who is always recognizing my poverty spiritually, even to the point of mourning over it and finding myself again in your comfort, Lord. Peacemakers, and I mean, we could do the list again. And Father, even in my state of persecution, because I'm simply doing the right thing, or persecuted because I am naming you Jesus, Lord, in all these things, do your finishing work. And for our part, would you just help us to trust that you're at work in us, to believe you for your promises, and to choose to be citizens of your coming kingdom in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 